God continued his assault of the gods and religious faith of Egypt by afflicting the nation of Egypt with a devastating plague of locusts. The recollection of the prophets of Israel continues in Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the presence of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, so that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they will cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has survived, what is left to you from the hail, and they will eat every tree of yours which grows in the field. Then your houses will be filled with them together with the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and left Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Who specifically are the ones who are going? Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, So may the Lord be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Watch out, for evil is on your mind. Not so. Go now, but only the men among you, and serve the Lord, since that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out with your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, everything that the hail has left. So Moses reached out with his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land, all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every plant of the land, and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Therefore nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron, and he said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. So now please forgive my sin only this once, and plead with the Lord your God, that he would only remove this death from me. Then he left Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. So the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, which picked up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. The ancient Egyptians associated grains and harvest with several deities. Chief of these gods was Osiris, who was thought to send life up from the underworld. But the god most directly under assault by the plague of locusts was the ancient Egyptian god, Mean. Richard Wilkinson has described Mean as follows. Mean was one of Egypt's most ancient and enduring deities, acting as the supreme god of male sexual procreativity and as a deity of the eastern desert regions throughout dynastic history. Of greatest importance to the mythological history of Mean is the fact that during the 18th dynasty the god became increasingly associated with a moon of Thebes, 
and became in essence the manifestation of a moon as primeval creator god, somewhat analogous to Atum's relationship with Reh at Heliopolis. The Kos lettuce, which was often depicted in pots or on offering tables with the god from the 6th dynasty through Roman times, was also a sexual reference, as the milky white sap of the lettuce seems to have been viewed as symbolic of semen, and the plant may have been considered an aphrodisiac. Mean's role as a god of fertility was of understandable importance in an agriculturally dependent area such as ancient Egypt, so we find scenes such as a relief of Ramses III at Medinet Habu, where the king is shown cutting wheat before Mean, and the god's major festival, the coming forth of Mean, which was celebrated at the beginning of the harvest season, was among the most important religious agricultural festivals in Egypt. Mean's connection with the god Set, who we discussed in episode 8, and the god Osiris, who will come under assault in the final plague the Lord sent against ancient Egypt, helps to explain the timing of this plague of locusts against Egypt's remaining crops. Nations throughout the ancient Near East associated male fertility with the sowing of seeds and the growing of crops. In the land of Canaan, this interplay was often worshipped in the guises of Baal and Ashtarte, as should be familiar to those who read and study the First or Old Testament of the Christian Bible. In Egypt, Min was the god of male fertility, who oversaw the sowing of seeds and the production of crops. Locust plagues were not uncommon in this part of the world in the days of Moses, nor are they today. However, the description of the severity of this plague in the book of Exodus is so extreme that many biblical scholars prefer to read it simply as hyperbole. Even so, the text of Exodus has not presented this as hyperbolic. The locust plague has been presented as judgment. Moses repeatedly warned Pharaoh that this plague of locusts would be unlike any Egypt had ever experienced before or would ever experience again. The locusts would completely cover the ground so that nothing but locusts could be seen. The locusts would devour every edible plant remaining in Egypt and would fill even the houses of the Egyptians. When God sent this devastating plague upon the ancient Egyptians, he was taunting the Egyptian god Min, who was said to watch over the production and growth of crops. If Min was a god, then certainly he could protect the crops of the Egyptians from a simple plague of locusts. When Min failed to act and Pharaoh was forced to beg the god of Israel for relief, God sent a westerly wind which blew the locusts east into the Red Sea. We recall again that Min was said to be the god of the desert areas east of Egypt. To drive home his point, God sent the locusts to the realm of Min. Which god of the west is akin to Min? Min was the god who watched over the work and labor of the Egyptians in the production of grains, fruit, and other crops. In the west today, Min is worshipped as the god of works, the god of good deeds, the god of human effort. This false god was not only worshipped in Egypt, but it was also worshipped among the people of Israel. In part, God sent the prophet Isaiah to expose and to condemn the worship of this false god among his own people. Perhaps by listening into God's words to Israel, we might hear again God's condemnation of the worship of the God of works, and have eyes to see God's assault of this false god again in our day. God spoke to the people of ancient Israel through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1 verses 2 through 20. God's premise in Isaiah 1, 2 through 20 is fairly straightforward. If God is God, then we must allow him to be God. If we will not allow him to be God, then we have not accepted him as God. However, what does it mean to allow God to be God? As we have read in Isaiah, much of what the Israelites were doing was consistent with what God had commanded them to do in the covenant of Sinai. And yet, despite what looked to be obedience, God was accusing them of rebellion, wickedness, 
and as the rest of the book of Isaiah makes clear, idolatry. God's first accusation was that his people did not know him. This is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Listen, heavens, and hear earth, for the Lord has spoken. Sons I have raised and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. According to the first verse of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uzziah, or Azariah, reigned from the early 790s BC to around 740 BC. Jotham followed him briefly, and then Ahaz. Hezekiah reigned from the mid-710s BC to the mid-680s BC. This tells us first that Isaiah prophesied for a long time, probably between 60 and 70 years. However, it also tells us that by this time Israel had walked with God for over 700 years. In 1446 BC, Israel had been delivered from slavery in Egypt and given the covenant of Sinai, which has been preserved in the first five books of the Christian Bible. In 1406 BC, they had begun the conquest of the land of Canaan. By 1040 BC, Saul had been crowned the first king of Israel, and in 1010 BC, David had succeeded him. By the end of Isaiah's season of prophesying, prophets the like of Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, and Jeremiah had already come and gone. The point is simply that Israel had experienced significant interactions with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to this point in history, and yet God accused his people of not knowing him, of not recognizing his voice when he spoke. How could that be? Through Isaiah, God explained to Israel that it was their rebellion against him that had blinded their eyes and deafened their ears. To say it another way, Israel had forgotten God in the wake of having suffered life without his protection. It's Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 4, O sinful nation, people weighed down with guilt, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The entire head is sick, and the entire heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing healthy in it, only bruises, slashes, and raw wounds, not pressed out, nor bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire. As for your fields, strangers are devouring them in front of you. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a city under watch. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. The images here are both visceral and bloody. In short, by rebelling against God, Israel had left herself vulnerable to the assaults of the world. Through those tragedies, horrors, and attacks that came upon them once they walked out from under the protective grace of God and His instructions, they had been beaten down so badly that they had what we today would call post-concussion or post-traumatic syndromes. The vulnerability and consequent suffering of living in a world without reference to God had left them with so many scars that they had lost their senses of sight and hearing. Afterwards, when God spoke to them to call them back into relationship with him, they no longer recognized his voice. Instead, they rejected and assaulted his prophets. Sadly, it was not obvious to Israel that they had rejected God. They certainly had not rejected all that he had taught them. As Isaiah's prophecy explains, they had continued to follow much required of them in the covenant of Sinai. Returning now to Isaiah's prophecy, now in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. 
Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your many sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courtyards? Do not go on bringing your worthless offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the proclamation of an assembly. I cannot endure wrongdoing and the festive assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of bearing them. For the Israelites of Isaiah's day, the heart of the covenant of Sinai was the temple. God had instructed the people to participate in a repeating cycle of annual festivals and ritual observances intended to keep Israel's memory of God's great acts in her past alive and present for her people. This is what Isaiah was referring to when he mentioned new moons, Sabbaths, assemblies, and feasts. The annual cycle of festivals and assemblies was based on the lunar calendar, and it was timed to the phases of the moon in different seasons. Apparently, Israel was still observing these requirements of the covenant. Beyond these, another central aspect of temple worship was the regular sacrifice of animals, the offering of the fruit of the ground, and the offering of incense. Even more, sacrifices were not only pivotal parts of the annual festivals, but they were offered daily by the priests. The covenant of Sinai included abundant instructions about sacrifices for the atoning of non-rebellious offenses against the covenant of Sinai. In Hebrew, these sins were called shigagah, which means something like without malice. Apparently, the Israelites were continuing to obey these requirements of the covenant of Sinai as well. And yet God told them through Isaiah that he was tired of them. The sacrifice of animals was no longer pleasing to him. Their presence in the temple was unwanted by God. Their offerings were worthless, their incense an abomination, and God had come to hate their festivals. How could obedience to the covenant of Sinai become an abomination to God? God went on to explain through Isaiah with these words. This is verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you offer many prayers, I will not be listening. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Obtain justice for the orphan. Plead for the widow's case. For God, there was more to the covenant of Sinai than the temple, and there was more to godliness than ritual observances. The heart of the covenant of Sinai was, in the words of Jesus, preserved in Matthew 22:34 through 40 as follows. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Love for Jesus is rooted in the Hebrew word chesed, which relates to steadfast loyalty. We've discussed it in this series before, and we'll discuss it again more extensively in episode 10 when we discuss the Western God of love. But Jesus has insisted that the covenant of Sinai was not given simply to teach people how to behave. Rather, the covenant of Sinai was given to begin to teach people who they were to become. One who has chesed is one who is true to one's word, who is loyal to one's neighbors, whose guiding principle is loyalty and faithfulness both to God and to those amongst whom one lives. But Israel learned it was easier to follow rules 
than to become people of chesed. So they selected what they thought to be the most important aspects of the covenant of Sinai, and they religiously observed those particular aspects. They didn't believe it mattered what kind of people they were becoming, so long as they observed the religious holy days, participated in temple worship, and performed the mandated acts of sacrifice and obeisance. This is foolishness to God, and it is not the way of those who know him. So through Isaiah, God highlighted several ways in which it was clear that they had failed to understand the word of God to them. Despite their festivals, sacrifices, incense, and ritual piety, they were filthy and evil in God's sight. Rather than doing good to those around them, they were bringing harm upon their neighbors. Rather than seeking to submit to the law's requirements with respect to all people, they were favoring those in power and allowing the vulnerable in their society to suffer injustice and oppression. To put it in Jesus' terms, they had sought to love God without loving their neighbors, and so they became lawbreakers. Isaiah proclaimed to them that for God, this selective application of the covenant of Sinai was deliberate and therefore rebellious. That is a serious charge under the covenant of Sinai, as can be seen in Numbers chapter 15, verses 27 to 31. It says also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray by an unintentional sin, making atonement for him so that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for the native among the sons of Israel, and for the stranger who resides among them, for one who does anything wrong unintentionally. But the person who does wrong defiantly, whether he is a native or a stranger, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Since he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Irrespective of how much of the covenant of Sinai Israel had been willing to obey, if Israel had deliberately refused to follow some of the stipulations of the covenant, they were guilty of this sin of the raised right hand. Defiant. There was no sacrifice for such a sin. They had to be cut off. The New Testament writer James made the same argument that we find in Isaiah. But in his case, it was directed to the Christian church. This is James chapter 2, verses 8-13. through 13. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a violator of the law. So speak and so act as to those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And yet in both Isaiah and in James, God has offered mercy to those who will repent. This is again Isaiah chapter 1, now verse 18. Come now, and let us debate your case, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As James has said, mercy triumphs over judgment. But only if we will repent, if we will turn from our rebellions. The ancient Egyptians worshipped mean. The ancient Israelites worshipped the temple and its ritual observances, and today this God of works is worshipped still. Sometimes it takes a shape similar to that in ancient Israel in the days of Isaiah, particularly for religious people. 
There are still many who think that all that is required to follow God is participation in worship, the offering of prayers, and the observance of special holidays. Such people are as alienated from God as were the ancient Israelites in the days of Isaiah. God is seeking to transform the hearts of his people, not simply their schedules or their songs. However, the worship of the God of works has taken another form today, a form that is oftentimes as difficult for us to see as Israel's rebellion was for them. Many have taken Isaiah's warning to heart and have come to believe that so long as one cares for the poor or does good deeds to one's neighbor, one is in favor with God. This is the same mistake Israel made in another form. It still assumes that God is looking to transform behavior when God is in fact looking to transform people. In Isaiah's day, many in Israel made every sacrifice required of them and attended every festive gathering, while at the same time showing favoritism to the powerful and leaving the disenfranchised to be exploited. This happens today too. But in addition to this, there are many today, both in the church and in culture, who believe that so long as they stand for the right causes and right people, so long as they give to those in need and fight for those who are facing injustice, they are in favor with God. These very behaviors are used to justify gossip, unforgiveness, cursing of others, and all sorts of ungodly behavior. In recent years, Christian leaders have even been exposed as having cared for some oppressed people, while at the same time victimizing others. The Apostle Paul has described what kind of person God is seeking to create, and what kind of person God stands against. The following is from Paul's epistle to the Colossians in chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Paul wrote this, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also rid yourselves of all of them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you stripped off the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so must you do also. In addition to all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ, to which you were indeed called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Many today, both in the church and without, have come to worship the God of works. A God that requires only behavior, and is unconcerned with the heart out of which such behavior flows. But Paul has described the heart of one who pleases God, 
the heart of one who knows God's voice and the heart of one who God knows. As the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, assaulted the ancient Egyptian god Min by sending a plague of locusts upon the people of Egypt, and as God assaulted the ancient Israelite god of temple and tradition by destroying the temple in Jerusalem and sending his people into exile in Babylon, so God is assaulting the Western God of works again today. For all those who have given God your hands, but withheld your hearts, God will tear down what you have built in the days to come. For all those who have cloaked ungodliness with acts of charity and mercy, God will expose your true character before all in the days to come. For all those who have justified the harsh and unmerciful treatment of enemies because of the justness of of your cause or the vileness of their offense, you have cast what is sacred to the dogs, and God will turn the dogs you have gathered upon yourself. For all those who have nurtured ungodly hearts under the belief that participation in religious events and services would balance the scales, God will take your events and services away from you so that your hearts will be exposed. Even so, as God proclaimed through Isaiah and reiterated through James, mercy triumphs over judgment. If you turn from your rebellions and again humble yourself before the Lord, submitting both your hands and your heart to his lordship, he will hear your prayer and entrust you to the shepherding of Jesus. To those who repent in these ways, the Lord has declared the following promise to you, which he first spoke through the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 36, beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, This is what the Lord God says, It is not for your sake, house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate my holiness, the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I show myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful and follow my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. Instead, I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your wrongdoings and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and humiliated for your ways, house of Israel.